Today we begin chapter 21 of Judges, the last chapter in Judges. And specifically, I'm going to be addressing verses 1 through 9 this morning in Judges chapter 21. And the title of this morning's sermon is The Sorrow for Benjamin, Part 1. The Sorrow for Benjamin, Part 1. Judges 21, 1 through 9. As we move from chapter 20 to chapter 21, the literary theme of, of the text changes. It changes from the destruction of Benjamin, which we dealt with, in the last chapter, to now the sorrow for Benjamin. So if you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 21. I'm going to read the first nine verses as we begin, so we get a, a good sense of what's going on before I delve more deeply into it. So Judges 21, 1 through 9, the text reads, Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, None of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So, <clears throat> what's going on here in these first nine verses? Well, one thing that we see is there's a lot of second guessing going on. And second guessing is one of these uh, conditions of our, our sinful con, uh, condition as, as humans, as fallen humans in a fallen world. And second guessing is, is something that we do. All, all of us do it. It's, it's an action and we, we engage in. So it's, a, you know, grammatically it's considered a, a verb. And it can be defined two ways, interestingly, even though we basically use it just one way. It can be defined, and this is the usual way we think of it, as using hindsight in criticizing or correcting something. This type of second guessing is known by other terms. And so I went to thesaurus.com to see, well, what are some of the other things we call this, this thing, second guessing? Well, Monday morning quarterbacking, you know, we're all familiar with that, and, and I actually thought of that one on my own, but they had it. So another one's Dutch uncle, which I wasn't that familiar with, a backseat driver, which um, when uh, our grandchildren are in the car, or either with us or their parents, we have uh, very good examples of backseat drivers. All the grandkids seem to be backseat drivers. Another one that we don't use too much, at least in this area, is a kibitzer. Um, another one is a budinsky, and you know, that's just straight to the point, right? And all of these are synonyms for uh, unwelcome second-guessers. But there are, surprisingly, thesaurus.com says there are second-guessers that we actually pay money to second-guess for us, and they're known as attorneys or lawyers, now, that's actually in thesaurus.com. I didn't make that up, so, but I, I thought it was pretty hilarious. The other f definition of second-guessing is to predict something or to outguess someone. As an example, um, we must try to second-guess what he will do next. There's, there's actually a specialty in this. 
nowadays. It's called futurism or future forecasting. And you can actually go to school and be taught this because I went to grad school and got a degree in this before I went to seminary. We called it strategic leadership, how to look at what we thought was coming ahead over what we called over the horizon and how to prepare for it. And actually, it was just a bunch of educated second guessing. These two definitions, though, show it can refer to actions in the past and actions in, in the future. And we all second guess ourselves at one time or another, don't we? Both when we look back at what we did and we look forward to things we need to do, decisions we need to make. And this can create a problem. It can lead to a state of indecisiveness when we're unable to make decisions. I've, I've known people that basically become completely frozen because of this, that they worry about making the wrong choice and thus they cannot make choices. And we find that others second guess us. All you have to do is make a difficult or controversial decision and you will discover that there are certain people that are more than happy to point out to you how wrong you were in your choice. And this, honestly, it does create stress for us, doesn't it? There's unrelenting pressure that, that's put upon people by this. Now, my previous career in law enforcement, we made, we made a, an art and science of second-guessing. Everyone was expected, really, to perform to the utmost of perfection, especially if it came to later a lawsuit or an internal investigation or something of that nature. And you were held to the highest standards, and there was no excuse for failure. And if you made a mistake, you were held accountable for that. You weren't usually told what you should have done, just what you did was wrong. And it was very stressful, and, and quite a few police officers cannot stand that pressure over time, and they end up having to leave the profession because of it. It's a very difficult way to live, honestly. And, and those in the medical profession uh, experience something along those lines, I would imagine, in, in decisions, life and death decisions. The stress that's there is, is immense. So should we be overly concerned with what others think? No, we shouldn't, but we don't want to go to the other extreme and be like some people who are the complete opposite. They're, they're, um, they're, they purposely go against what might be called prevailing wisdom. They take delight in being outliers from the group, to be the one who marches to the beat of a different drummer. And this creates its own problems. So um, either end of the spectrum, like most things in human life, can create problems for us. Now, my purpose with all of this, though, is not to psychoanalyze here, but to address sin and sinners living in a sinful world where everything surrounding us is in a fallen condition. Yet this idea of second-guessing, it, 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 it gives us a hint of something. Even though we're sinners in a fallen world, we have yet an idea of perfection. An idea that things can be and should be better. A state that is really unreachable by any mortal, yet demanded by many. Where do we get this idea if no one can be perfect? We often demand it of ourselves and others demand it of us. And think about this, no other sentient creature, a creature that, that has a degree of self-awareness, a degree of thinking, maintains such thought processes. You know, as I was writing this, I was thinking about my dog and how happy she is no matter what. And she, her idea of perfection just varies on whatever's going on seems to be perfect for her. Why are we different? No one, no one, no other creature is like us. 
Obviously, because we are made in the image and likeness of the one true God. We are the highest creatures on this earth made by the Lord Almighty. We're not accidents. We're not stardust. I think this is demonstrative proof that we have been purposely created to be of a higher order. And we realize, even those that are not believers in Christ, those that deny God, even they realize that there is this perfection that is to be strived for. So as if second-guessing ourselves is not enough, humans have a tendency to second-guess God. We're going to look at this in our text this morning, and it goes on um, in chapter 21. So as, as we know, God reveals himself to us in the Word, both the inspired written Word of Scripture and in the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, Son of God. Both of these ways... Through both these ways, I should say, God tells us who and what he is. But there are some, even some who call themselves Christians, who say in the face of such evidence, no, I don't believe that my God is not like that at all. Even after it's been preached directly from the Bible or someone reads a passage directly from the Bible. Second-guessing not only God's actions and decrees, but his very character that he has revealed to us. And I would say this is the height of arrogant pride to argue back to God about what he should be like and demanding that he change to fit how we want him. Of course, there are things that God does that we have difficulty understanding. There's no way around that. And it's really not sinful to ask why certain things happen. We're not expected to be fatalists who just say, well, it's the will of God, um, oh well, and carry on. The quest for understanding what God does and for understanding in what he would have us do as obedient and faithful people of his, is is not second-guessing. So I want to make that clear. And the Bible does make that clear, uh, that the Lord is quite open to our inquiries, to our our questioning, even, even encourages our questions. But we may not be given the answers specifically to what we seek, because the Lord knows what we need. And what he tells us may be what he knows we need that we are unaware of. So as we look at this text this morning, Judges chapter 21, we find Israel is in a dilemma. They're in a pickle. They don't know what to do. They question God. And they question what God commanded them to do. But they go beyond asking God why. We see them second-guessing God's actions both in word and by the actions they undertake. They verbalize it and they act it out. They do this in an attempt to make things right in regards to Benjamin and what has occurred between the other tribes and the tribe of Benjamin. This brings us to the first point I would like to make this morning, point number one. There is no rest in sin. There is no rest in sin. By rest, I do not mean taking one's ease. <clears throat> Rather, I refer, to the, I refer to the biblical concept of rest as it's, as, as it's described best in the Old Testament by the Hebrew term minuha. And minuha is a place. It's a place where certain conditions are obtained and prevail. We think of rest as a condition we enter into. It's something we do. But the biblical understanding of it is is different. 
we might say that entering into this place of rest and receiving safety, security, and stability is the ideal of human existence as, as God has created it for us. However, God's word and human experience tells us that this state can only be brought about by God. This place of rest cannot be entered into by human effort. Now, of course, we may find it temporarily, but something that is temporary that's passing, really consider this. How safe is it? How stable is it? How secure is it? It may be for a time, but that time will pass. So we really deal in a state in our fallen existence, in a state of unsafety, insecurity, and instability. Turn now to to, uh, Psalms. I'm going to read from Psalm 95. The Lord talks about this in Psalm 95, verses 8 through 11. Psalm 95, 8 through 11. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day uh, at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The Lord God here warns us not to harden our hearts like Israel. Israel who went astray in the wilderness and wandered for 40 years, going astray and wandering. This is the opposite of Menahah. This is the opposite of being in that place of rest. And he says, notice, they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So remember, this is important in this concept, that God is talking about a a place here. And and in Hebrews, it's applied to us. So if if we turn to the book of Hebrews, in chapter 3, Hebrews 3, 7 through 13. And the, the first uh, verses in this passage, verses 7 through 11, are quoting Psalm 95. So I'm not going to read them over again. But in Hebrews 7, or excuse me, Hebrews 3, um, I'm going to pay particular attention here to verses 12 and 13. So that statement that God made to Israel uh, about you know not entering his rest because of uh, their their sinful hard heartedness is applied to us here by the author of Hebrews and he expounds upon it in verses twelve through thirteen. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the author of Hebrews is explaining us that this heart hardening is the rebellion of unbelief caused by the deceitfulness of sin. And he goes on in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Hebrews 4, 1 through 3. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So believers, those with faith, 
those who have ears that have been opened, those who have ears and listen, have obedient faith. They are able to enter into the special place of God and are given safety, security, and stability, even now and not yet. So we don't have it permanently, but we have it partially as the kingdom is being fulfilled. And once the kingdom is completely fulfilled by the Lord Jesus, we will have it eternally. So I want us to think about what these things mean. As I, as I touched on before, by these, in, the inherent qualities of these things, they, they cannot be removed or taken away. If they are, then you really do, are not in that state. It's kind of difficult for us to understand because we are not yet in that state. We're talking about something theoretical here. There's, there's places we go, there's times in our life where we, where we are safe. But yet there's places we go and things that happen in our life where we feel unsafe. Since these things are inherently, I would say, eternal... They are qualities of the kingdom. If they just went poof and vanished in the kingdom, they would fail and, and become their direct opposites. What we have in the world today, as I said, unsafe, insecure, unstable. Those are the qualities of the world. So we need to make this differentiation and see it as an assurance of our faith. These things could not be promised to us unless the Lord himself was assuring that we would remain in the faith. If we could make ourselves fall out of it or someone else could make ourselves fall out of it, how could God promise us this entrance into his rest, this place where these things are? It, would, it, it couldn't happen. It's, it's contradictory. So with the account of the Levite and the concubine that we had in Judges uh, chapters 19 through 21, which we've been dealing with, we have an example of this term from, from Hebrews chapter 3, the deceitfulness of sin. Think about the Levite's inflammatory testimony to Israel when they gathered at Mizpah, when he sent out that horrible signal that horrible message of his concubine's body cut up that caused them to gather to find out why was this done. His inflammatory testimony leads to many sins from that point on. So ironically, we're dealing with a sinful report of a sin which can lead to nothing else but more sin. You see how humans get trapped in the sin cycle. There's no way out of this. And this is one of the things I would say that we must grapple with and realize is going on in Judges chapter 21 as we, as we go through and we think, what, what is this all about? Why is God telling me this story? What am I to learn from this? It's just a mess. So this this Levite's testimony is like just a tiny spark, right? Igniting a fire that consumes an entire forest. In this, we should see the nature of sin. Sin that is intended and also unintended. Sin that is mind-boggling. And when we track sins, if we were to do that, sit down and make a flow chart of one sin and see where it leads and see how it spreads out and the ripple effect, I think we'd be flabbergasted. Like the Lord warned Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7 specifically. Cain, as you recall, becomes angry over the rejection of his offering to the Lord God. And Lord God warns him. He tells Cain, sin is crouching at the door. In other words, sin is ready to pounce on you. Its desire is contrary to you. Sin wants that which which will harm you. Sin intends no good for you. 
But he tells Cain, you must rule over it. So in our fallen state, we essentially have here within ourselves a predator. That's, that's how sin is described in Genesis 4-7. A predator within us, seeking to do us harm, desiring to devour us. Now that sounds crazy, doesn't it? But think about life. Think about things that you've done in the past. I think about things I've done. I look back on it before I was a Christian. I think, man, that was just crazy. Didn't I see what was going to happen? You know, it's, it, it was, I was just hurting myself besides others around me. This predator, like I said, the, the, the Lord's talking about, he's talking about Cain's own sin nature, which each of us have. And since we're at war with ourselves, we are unable to vanquish this foe because we are the enemy in a sense. There are other enemies, obviously. But we are, as the saying goes, our own worst enemy many times. So this defeat of sin is an impossible task for ourselves. It must come from outside of ourselves if we have it within us. Outside of human nature, even. Because if it's in us, it's in him and it's in her. There's nobody perfect. There's only been one perfect man. That was our Lord Jesus Christ. Fully man, fully God. We are not him. Neither are the people that we may very appropriately admire and respect. They still have the sin nature. Yet, as the Lord told Cain, we are not without responsibility. This is not an excuse. And the Lord made this very clear to Cain. We are responsible to recognize our brokenness and seek wholeness. Where's this found? Where's wholeness found? Only in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't find it within ourselves. We don't find it outside of ourselves within human mortal culture. It is our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. He's the provider of rest. He he calls himself In the Gospel of John, he calls himself the door of the sheep. He is the one by whom his sheep, that's us, his people, believers, it's by him who we enter the sheepfold, which is their place, our place of rest. Now, we're not a pastoral society. We're not, we don't live in that culture. So a sheepfold, it's, just, it's like you're going into a pen. That doesn't sound like a good idea. To me, a pen is some place that hardened criminals get sent to and they get locked up. I don't really want to go into a pen. But, but think about it in the perspective of ancient Israel. The sheep that went into the sheepfold through the gate They were safe. This was a place of safety for them. They lived in a very dangerous world where there was wolves. There were even bears uh, in Judea uh, back in the biblical times that would attack and kill sheep. There was predators. In the sheepfold, the sheep found safety, security, stability. There, their shepherd watched over them and fed them and provided for them. That's, that's the idea there. So sometimes we have to struggle getting beyond these, these metaphors that are kind of foreign uh, to, to us. And once, even if we're okay with the metaphor, if we dig a little deeper and we think about it and we connect these ideas, then it's, it's really marvelous, the promises that, that are made to us and for us. So, applying this to what's going on in our text in Judges. Now remember, after three days of battle against the tribe of Benjamin, the confederation of the other Israelite tribes are confronted with the consequences of what has occurred. The text gives us a sense of shock on their part, and they're confronted with a problem. As we saw already, verses 1 through 4, now the men of Israel had sworn, they're not swearing this now, this occurred previously, they had sworn at Mizpah, 
No one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. What are we seeing here? Israel, and when I, mention, when I say Israel this morning, dealing with this, I'm talking about the confederation of the other 11 tribes as a whole. Israel is consumed with regret now. They cry out, what do we do? They're in a dilemma. There's a problem. The tribe of Benjamin has been wiped out except for 600 men. Only those who fled on foot to the rock of Ramon survive. It's okay if you don't remember this oath that, that they talk about in, in verse 1 of chapter 21 that, that, that they're concerned about because this is the first time it's mentioned in the text. It wasn't mentioned back before the battles. Even though we're told here, this oath was taken before the battles. Why is it not mentioned until now? Well, this withholding of this information by the author to his audience, which is us and the original audience, the intention here, I think, is for he wants to provide a similar shock to what Israel experienced when they realized what they had done. It's a reminder to Israel. Remember what you swore? He's saying they forgot about this. And it now dawns on them. Israel has been so focused on the battle. The first two days, remember, resounding defeat. They just got whooped. Followed by a day of overwhelming victory against Benjamin. And they have not even thought about that oath. And now they have to deal with it. When the tribes gathered at Mizpah prior to the battles, they swore an oath that no one shall give his daughter in marriage to a man of Benjamin. We'll call this the no wife oath. And Israel defeated the Benjaminite men. But then they slaughtered all of the women of Benjamin. So because of this oath, the surviving 600 Benjaminites cannot obtain brides from any other tribes. Now all of their women are dead. These men of Benjamin will die childless. The tribe of Benjamin faces extinction. This is the problem that this final chapter is wrestling with. Israel's realization of this causes the same sort of response as Israel's initial defeat in battle. They do the same thing they did after they got whooped badly by the Benjaminites. They assemble before the Lord at Bethel, weeping. But now a great deal of weeping. VSV translates it bitter weeping. Literally, it's a whole lot, a whole bunch of weeping. And they make inquiry of the Lord, just like they did before, and they offer sacrifices like they did before the third battle. Apparently, we see them now repenting of their desire for vengeance that they had in chapter 20. There's been a change of heart. They now have compassion for, as the text says twice in verses 6 and verses 15 of chapter 21, they have compassion for Benjamin, their brother. No longer their enemy, now their brother. The wording of their inquiry, though, in verse 3 is very interesting. I'm going to change it a little bit from what I read in the ESV, and it's going to be more in the poetic uh, ancient uh, uh, um, Hebrew form, where the emphasis is much clearer. Their inquiry is this. It's a lament. Why, Yahweh, God of Israel, has this come about in Israel? That one tribe has today been eliminated from Israel. There's a threefold reference to Israel that, that's very apparent when, when it's constructed um, this way. Begins with 
calling Yahweh the God of Israel. They're reminding the Lord God who he is. That's the height of hubris right there. And they're implying something. They refer to Israel in the sense of 12 united tribes and Yahweh being the God of each one of those tribes and all of them together. So this is not a petition on how to proceed that they are voicing. This is a protest over what has happened. It actually is an accusation against the Lord God by Israel. In our vernacular, they're saying, how could you have done this to us? We know that this is, that this is true because fast forward a little bit. We're not in this part of the, the chapter yet, but verse 15 to come, we read, and the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Talk about virtue signaling. They're saying they're better than the Lord God. Israel's claiming that they are the compassionate ones, while the Lord is at fault for busting up their wonderful unity. What we're seeing here is, according to Barry Webb, in his commentary of the book of Judges, is an attempt conscious or unconscious, by Israel to absolve themselves, to remove themselves from responsibility for what has happened. But Yahweh will not be drawn into their scheme. Previously, at this very same place, Bethel, early on in the book of Judges in chapter 2, the Lord appears to them as the angel, the angel of Yahweh. And he speaks to them. He chastises by by saying to them directly, you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? When he points out how they have turned to other gods, how they have become like the Canaanites. He does the same thing here, but his chastisement is silence. Yet his silence speaks volumes. He does not accept their implied accusation. Nor does he bother defending himself. God needs no defense. He offers them no solution to their predicament. They'll have to deal with it as best they can. He is unmoved by their weeping and offerings because he will not be used by them. The Lord, our God, will not be our scapegoat. He is a scapegoat, though, isn't he? He was a scapegoat in the person of the Son. All sins were put upon him. But that, that was the Lord's good pleasure to do that. It is not our place to demand it of him again and again, although we have forgiveness for our sins in him. But how do we obtain forgiveness? Do we obtain forgiveness by accusing God of you? You set me up in this situation, God. You put me here. It's your fault. You've got to forgive me. No, we know, brothers and sisters, that that's not proper. But that's basically what the tribes of Israel are, are doing here. The Lord is merciful and graceful to us to forgive us of our sins, but our sins are our responsibility. And when we turn from them and repent, we are recognizing that this is our doing. It is not the Lord's doing. He had warned them previously in, in chapter 10. He recounts what he has done to him in Judges chapter 10, 11 through 14, he reminds them, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Manoites oppressed you. And you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, 
I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Now Israel at Bethel is faced by God's silence. Point number two. Unity is not the same as integrity. Unity is not the same as integrity. Just because people are united does not mean they are right, ethically or morally. All of Israel is united in their accusation against the Lord God. This is an important distinction to realize as we live in what we could term the age of consensus. How often are we confronted with those who are assigned the label expert by the news media or social media, whatever, who say, well, you know, we're in consensus on this. All scientists agree on this. All doctors agree on this. All right-thinking people agree on this. When you hear those words, you really need to take care when people are depending on consensus, knowing who we are as sinners Should we depend on the consensus of sinners? No, because a lot of sinners will not admit that they are sinners. The consensus of sinners is they are not sinners. We have to grapple with that. The idea of of the number of people who hold a certain position or argument um, being presented as the most important argument for or against something is, is really is, is to, at the bottom at, at, at the, the bottom the bottom idea here is what I'm trying to say is it's not biblical right there's nothing in the Bible about majority rules Israel was united here they formed an overwhelming consensus against Benjamin even though the initial crime was not carried out by Benjamin, was it? It was carried out by a a relatively, comparatively small criminal mob that, that was focused and committed to extreme violence. That's who committed the, the sin that got this whole thing going. Now they are united against an overwhelming, in an overwhelming consensus against Yahweh. They turned against Benjamin. Now they are turning against Yahweh. And they're accusing Yahweh of what happened to Benjamin is his fault. While they are the compassionate ones. So while there may be strength in numbers, that, that's true. And it's not bad to have a, a lot of people on your side. Especially in the church when we're united in faith. We're in, united in good gospel principles, it does our heart good to see brothers and sisters standing with us. Most of us, including me, are not the type that feel really good when we're standing alone. You know, when we look out at the battlefield and we go like, well, everybody else is gone, but it's just me and that's the way I like it. No, most of us are like, I need need my allies here. But strength in numbers, yes. But there's no righteousness in numbers. There's no spiritual safety in numbers. Take no comfort from having many in agreement with you if you're in disagreement with God's word. That's, that's, that's not good. Just because a lot of people deny the Bible doesn't mean it's okay to deny the Bible. Our Lord made this very clear in Matthew Chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Now, before I read this, keep in mind what we saw in John chapter 10, where Jesus describes himself as the door or the gate to the sheepfold. But here in Matthew, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Do you see when we, when we put these, these parables, these, these, these metaphorical ideas together from the Gospels, how Jesus again is talking about himself. That's, that's 
clear. I think most of us know that, but still it's just really cool when you, when you see how this works. And bear in mind that these are two different authors, two, two different human authors, and, they're, and this is coming together. So we see the hand of the divine author in these things. So Israel has accused Yahweh of creating conditions that will lead to the extinction of Benjamin. And Israel is going to make this right. They are going to fix what God has done. In verse 5, chapter 21, we read, The people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. The great oath referred to here is the oath taken at Mizpah to go to war, the the war oath. Um, The seriousness of the decision that was made, the fact it was made before the Lord, are the essential elements of this oath, even though it's not referred to as such. And in the Hebrew, it is called the great oath, with the definite article attached to it, implying that all the people knew of it. So the assembled tribes are coming up with an idea of using this oath, the war oath, as a way of finding wives for the survivors of Benjamin because they also made the no wife oath. So, okay, this no wife oath has put us in a predicament. We'll use the war oath and maybe we can find an answer to this. Just to clarify, there was not a problem with the oath they took the war oath, but it was the way it was applied. It was not only the culprits of the sin, of the crime who were put to death, it was everyone who took their side from the, from the criminals in, in Gabeah to the rulers of Gabeah to the other Benjaminites of the tribe. Israel extended the death penalty beyond what was originally stated. And furthermore, the first indication of siding with the culprits at Gibeah was the decision by the tribe of Benjamin as a whole to boycott the assembly at Mizpah, where the oath was made. The Benjamites didn't go up. They heard about it. So how did the Israelites seize, what did they seize upon as providing a possible way out? How so? What was their thought process in using this oath? They're thinking, what if some other part of Israel did not go up to the assembly? Wouldn't we be justified in punishing them too, the same way the Benjamites had been punished? And if so, that may be the source where we can get the wives for Benjamin. Verses 6 through 9, we read, And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So we, you know, there's a lot of the same information that's repeated here in 6 through 9 that we saw in 1 through 3 with the additional information that's new to us that no one from Jabesh Gilead went to the assembly. So these verses here, 6 through 9, they kind of halt the forward progress of the narrative. There's a pause here, and this pause is used to emphasize three things, I would say. First, again, emphasizing Israel's compassion for Benjamin as their motivating factor. Number two, the dilemma that they face. What shall we do for wives for those who are left from Benjamin? And number three, they actually do take care here to make sure that what they think about Jabesh Gilead is actually so before they take action. They confirm what they think. So even though the Israelites have demonstrated a moral blindness and deceptive reasoning in all this, the author, the human author and the divine author, 
of course, they're being even-handed about, about Israel in this narrative. The author knows what follows Israel's decision. What follows is going to bring more bloodshed. And the moral reasoning of Israel is going to go from bad to worse. But these verses, I think, show that the author is not entirely hostile to them. He's showing us that the change of heart of Benjamin is genuine. There, there's no sarcasm here when he talks about the compassion. But, but there is irony in this. They're now compassionate where before they were vengeful. And they, he recognizes they face a real dilemma and they do not act without deliberation. Perhaps like the old man early in the story, sojourning in Gabeah, who tries to protect his guest, the Levite, and his concubine. And he does this in an unwise way. He offers his own daughter and the Levite's concubine to the mob at the door. He is thinking he's doing the best in this horrible situation. That's kind of like what Israel's reasoning is. We've got this horrible situation. We're just doing the best we can. That's their perspective. But Israel's problem is they're determined to fix what they say God has done. They want to set everything right and put things back the way they were before the war in the good old days. So there's a definite sense here that they think themselves more thoughtful than Yahweh God in this regard. Thoughtfulness is such a modern term. It's not really meaningful. It it intends mainly to demean anyone who has a different opinion who thinks otherwise. Their views are unthoughtful, whereas we thoughtful ones are the thinkers. We consider before we take action. But can there be peace in Israel's future now after what has happened? What becomes of a tribe that is reduced to Benjamin's state? 600 fighting men without any women. These are men that are trained and equipped for war. They have no motivation now to lay down their swords. They have no homes to return to. Their homes have been burned. They have no wives to be reunited with. Their wives have been murdered. They have no maidens to woo and marry. The young women have been slaughtered. All of these factors combined make a very dangerous and desperate man. Nations that lack in women for, marrying, for men of marrying age are even viewed in geopolitical analysis as very high-risk nations that are primed to engage in warfare. Men without women is not a good thing. Examples, China, with their notorious one-child policy for decades, and the inclination to want only male children resulted in the slaughter of so many little girl babies. There are not enough women in China for men of the younger generation to marry. They'd all been killed off. Those who who plan strategy look at this and say, this is a very dangerous nation because these men are naturally going to be violent. We look at nations that have polygamous cultures and large impoverished populations There's not sufficient women for the impoverished man. Why? Because the rich guys get the women. It's the same the world over. But when the rich guys get to have multiple women, then the poor guys, they get nothing. Who wants to marry a poor shepherd when she could marry a rich merchant? That's understandable. But these Factors lead to aggression and destabilization and eventual military conflict. And this is what has happened to Benjamin. This is where they're heading. Women, we must recognize, are a blessing. Women are a stable, and I don't say that like, you know, it's hard to recognize. But no, think about this. We, and we, and we don't, I don't think we do often enough. Women are a stabilizing 
force in society. Women cause men to behave in a civilized manner. They make men behave. Us men know that. We may not want to admit it, but they do, and it's a good thing. God's blessing of the creation of women in Genesis 2 is is far beyond what can even really be described. Men unrestrained are dangerous to each other, and they're dangerous to themselves. And every lady here who has raised a son, I think, will agree with me in this idea. I've witnessed Karen's influence on, on our son, and now our daughters with their sons, our grandsons. Our grandsons are naturally Visigoths and Vandals. They would, they would go and sack Rome in a moment's notice if they had their way. And it would be fun. And it's only mom, more than dad, that holds back boys and men and brings us civilization. So Israel has compassion for their brother Benjamin, but also reason to fear Benjamin. We must recognize that, that that's underlying in this. All they've done is leave 600 survivors at Rock Ramon who will spend every waking moment of the rest of their lives in violent reprisal against the other tribes. That's true. Each of us men think about it. If everything we loved was taken from us, apart from God's grace, how would we react? It's It's frightening. When peace is declared and and the peace is desired to be lasting, the manner in which the victor treats the vanquished is key. So Israel's misguided attempt to shift responsibility for the war's results, I think, demonstrates the reaction of this, along with their compassion for Benjamin. Punitive peace, one enforced at the point of a sword or a gun, brings problems of its own. We see this in history. The U.S. Civil War, after that bloody conflict ended and President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, his plans for the reunification of the government got swept aside by the cry for vengeance. And his successor, his vice president, Andrew Johnson, was not of a strong enough moral fiber and character to prevail and carry out the former president's, the late president's wishes and Reconstruction was foisted upon the South, which created bitterness and enmity for at least a century afterwards. We see this after World War I and the Treaty of Versailles. The Allied powers and the, the conditions they imposed upon Germany wrecked Germany and brought about the Second World War. It was just a continuation of the first, they just lit a slow match. So how we treat those who are defeated is important. So their motivation, in a sense, was proper. But their methodology was not only wrong, it was horribly wrong, as their assignment for blame was. What they did against Benjamin is they declared holy war. In the Old Testament, there's this term, harim, which is often translated devoted to to destruction. This is how the Lord instructed Israel to do battle, to wage war against the fortified Canaanite cities. And in Deuteronomy chapter 20, the Lord gives the laws of warfare, the laws of, of combat. And this harim was only to be used and declared against these cities in Canaan, not not against people outside of the promised land, certainly not against other Israelites. Harim was everybody dies, every living thing dies, and everything is destroyed and burned. This is exactly what Israel did to Benjamin what they should have done to the Canaanites, who often they did not. They, they, re, they did not carry out what they were directed against these evil enemies of God and themselves. My last point here, point number three. 
We are not to add to God's word. We are not to add to God's word. Israel made a mistake that many people have made and continue to make. They believe they know better than God. The Lord decreed that they were to go up against Benjamin when Benjamin sided with the sons of Belial, the sons of Satan in Gabeah, these rapists who did this horrible thing, when they sided with them over the other sons of Israel, rejecting the covenant and the law. The Lord decreed, go up against them. Then independent of any command of God, they make a no-wife oath in addition to the war oath. This goes beyond what God told them to do. This oath, joined with their unauthorized harem, devotion to destruction, would lead to the eradication of Benjamin, if carried out to its natural conclusion. The men who made this decision in Israel did not see this. The Lord, of course, sees it. The Lord did not command them to do this. It was not his intent that Benjamin be wiped out. The Israelites realize this when their passions cool, and that's when they blame Yahweh. They added to the Lord's command. And to not add or subtract from God's word is very difficult for people. We either find ways around God's commands where we think we can claim technically to have obeyed while actually disobeying, for instance, in the observation of the Lord's Day, and not neglecting assembling with the saints. We all know there's plenty of ways people use to get around what God tells us to do here. Or we add additional requirements, don't we, to God's commands to ensure that what we see as the spirit of the law is fulfilled because we do not believe God's commands are adequate in and of themselves, that we must interpret them further and add layers upon them. Some people think God's word lacks clarity and it's their duty to provide that clarity. Many of us come from a religious background where the adding on part to God's word actually forms the religion much more than God's word forms the religion. That's the background I came from. There are many religions invented by man that have a text, a set of rules, a whole organization that overrides and can actually countermand God's word. But we know the mind of God how? Only through his revelation to us. We are, we are mortals with a finite mind. How do we know an infinite, unlimited God? We know him only by him revealing himself to us. When we go beyond that and say, well, my God is something contrary to what he's revealed himself to be, then we are doing very, something very similar to what the Israelites are doing here. And that's not to say we don't work at making connections in the Bible, in the Revelation. So we interpret it in light of itself. This is what biblical theology does, and that's, that's an important and proper thing. Otherwise, I wouldn't be standing up here, and Pastor Steve, Pastor Mike wouldn't stand up here um, and, and do what we do every Lord's Day. It also means we're not to be legalistic biblicists where we demand a proof text verse that contains the exact wording before we accept Christian doctrine as valid. That presents its own problems. In closing, I just want to say, as we've gone through this account, and we will continue to go through it, we are confronted over and over again with sin to the point where one can become overwhelmed with dismay. It's not a happy thing, really, to preach the book of Judges. It's not a happy thing to sit Lord's Day after Lord's Day and listen to the book of Judges. It can be a challenge to find bright spots in this. But there are, I assure you, and I, and, and I, and I pray that I've been able to bring out the light and, and some bright spots in this because 
the, the preacher's burden amongst this sort of sin and darkness, often oppressive darkness, I must say, is to declare the tenacity of God's grace, no matter our mistakes and stumbling. Ultimately, God's grace towards his people prevails. That's what we need to see as we look at these difficult times that Israel has brought itself into. The faithful remnant of Israel knew Yahweh would not abandon them. They believed with all their hearts that the Messiah was coming. And the faithful remnant today know the Lord will not abandon them, will not abandon us. He has come as our Savior, and he is coming again. He has promised this to us, and we trust him. He is our life and our light. His light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, cannot, will not overcome it. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you grant us clarity and discernment that we may be obedient to what you wish, that we may follow your word, that we may not detract from it or add to it. Lord, this this requires wisdom that only you can give us. We recognize that, Father, and we desire that. We desire to be your faithful and obedient people. As our focus is on you, we know that you give us all things, things that are good as well as things that are not good, but it is in accordance with your plan. Father, I ask for blessing and grace upon the brethren here and those watching on live stream. Father, bless them, protect them as they go about the day. May we remain focused on you, even though we will depart from this place, from your house, that wherever we go is your territory, because we are your temple, and we take you into the world and testify to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.